From NPR Music, this is Alt Latino. I'm Felix Contreras. Every now and then, we like to use this space to talk about non-musical issues that impact the Latino or Latinx community. And this week, we're going to do just that with three different stories. We're going to turn our attention to the U.S.-Mexico border and the children who had been separated from their families and now either can't be found or can't be reunited with those families. We're going to hear from a Southern California vocalist who just released a new EP that addresses social issues, including those children. But first, we're going to visit with our familia at Radio Ambulante, NPR's only Spanish-language podcast. We're going to hear all about their new season and celebrate a production milestone with Radio Ambulante host Daniel Alarcón. Okay, congratulations. I saw you guys had, what is it, your 25 millionth download? Is that what it was? Yeah, yeah. It's a particularly big milestone, man, if you think. I mean, I remember when we started in our basement in California, not knowing what kind of microphone to buy or how to upload a podcast to iTunes. You know, like, it's a big milestone, but there was a lot of little milestones before that, and it's it's huge. It's huge for us. Who is your audience? Who's out there listening? Who are these 25 million people out there? I think of the audience in thirds. A third is Latin Americans living in Latin America. A third would be Latinos living in the United States. And maybe a third is, like, non-Latinos living in the United States or elsewhere trying to learn Spanish. But roughly speaking, that's held throughout the existence of Rambulante. Let's talk about your current season that we're right in the middle of right now. What stories have you done so far, and then what can we expect for the rest of the season? Well, as you know, 2020 has been a tough year for everybody, being that we're the narrative journalism podcast in Spanish at NPR. We get a lot of historias de denuncia, you know, a lot of stories where people are trying to expose some kind of injustice and right some kind of wrong. And those stories are super important, and we always take them on. But we also felt, for a couple of reasons, just given the, the kind of bleak moment that we're in, that we wanted this season to be a little bit different from a typical Raumbulante season and do maybe a little bit less of that. What we wanted was stories that are entertaining, that remind people that, that life can be great, that people laugh and cry and dance and, and fall in love. And we wanted those kinds of stories as well. And so in tone, in its ambiance, I think the, the season is a touch more uplifting, a touch funnier than some of our previous seasons. So we've had an intimate look at parenting during quarantine, where the star of the episode is a very hilarious, outspoken seven-year-old uh, Puerto Rican girl named Jimena. We've had stories about a, an absurd pyramid scheme in the Dominican Republic. We had stories about a, a lawsuit to prove that an animal had political and, and human rights in Argentina. We had a story about a kind of crusading inmate out of prison and the things that she did to make sure that she wasn't treated differently because of her sexual orientation. You know, stories that are, I think, on the whole, fun. <laughs> you know, I mean, to mm-hmm. the extent that some of these stories are difficult to tell, but I think they're all moving and fun and compelling with the same quality that we always try to bring to Rayo Mulante. I want to kind of pull the veil back a little bit and, and give our listeners uh, a little bit of the nuts and bolts of what it takes to, to put together a podcast like this. And specifically, what is your curation process? How does your team uh, decide on which stories to tell? Because there's obviously so many to tell. How do you decide which ones to tell and to share with your audience? Well, when you put together a season, I feel like you're always thinking for diversity of tone, diversity of the protagonist, geographic diversity. I mean, keep in mind, we're a regional show. So we get listeners from Argentina, from Mexico, from Chicago, from San Diego, 
you know, back down to Lima, you know, like from all over and, and Europe, of course. So we're always thinking stories that don't all sound the same, that don't all cover the same issues, where the protagonists have different voices and, and speaking styles. But most of all, you know, like we look for stories where we know we have access to characters who are going to surprise us, you know. So we don't want to hear the same story that that we've heard many times. We want mm-hmm. we want a story with a twist, you know. And and you you know this, and, and some of your younger listeners might not. But you remember when you put together a mixtape, <laughs> you were always trying to to sort of hit that right balance. And I think of a season of Rambulante as a mixtape. What does Latin America sound like now? I think is the the core question that we're trying to answer. And of course, in a region as big and as diverse as this one. We're not going to answer that with one episode. We might answer it with 30, which is why our seasons are that long. You guys, of course, are a podcast, but you'll have other platforms, too. Can you talk about other ways that people can engage with Radio Ambulante? I think of ourselves as a community of listeners, you know, like uh, we have such an engaged audience. Uh, you know, of course, we're on all social media, even the ones that I don't know how to use. Um <laughs> Before the pandemic, we were doing listening clubs, you know, in-person, real-life, human interactions where our, we created a platform for our listeners to self-organize meetups where they would listen to an episode the day before it was uh, released and then have a discussion and share a glass of wine and talk about the episode. And that was really fun. And we, you know, we facilitated, you know, 3,000 in-person gatherings. It was incredible. Wow. Obviously, with the pandemic, that's gone online, and there's still some that are having sort of virtual meetups, which is which is great. We just launched today, just announced today we're talking, which is the 24th of November. We announced Rambulante Fest, which is a series of events and workshops, conversations with producers that we admire, you know, folks like Jad Abumrad and Sarah Koenig and Nadia Raiman that I'm going to be interviewing, and then members of the team are teaching workshops for our audience. So that's going to be for the next, you know, three weeks. Again, before the pandemic, we did live shows, we, did, we you know, and, and we're trying to, to, to figure out ways to create meaningful interactions without being in person. And, and the, the most successful, I think, has been these parties that we've been throwing, online Zoom parties where people are in their safe houses or their safe, you know, their bubbles, um, but we're all dancing to the same music. And <laughs> we have DJs from Colombia who are just incredible. And the last party started at eight and went till three in the morning. And you don't even have to hire a babysitter, you know, (laughs) that's the best part. One of the things, before we wrap this up, but one of the things I wanted to talk to you about was that you're also an accomplished novelist. Have you been able to do any writing lately? You know, I haven't written fiction in a while. I haven't, um, I haven't felt the desire. I've done a lot of writing, like journalism, you know, uh, Mm I wrote, uh, I'm a a staff writer, uh, contributing staff writer now for The New Yorker, covering Latin America. And so I I did a big piece on the constitutional referendum in Chile. I wrote an essay about uh, Rita Indiana's new album, which I'm sure you've heard, which is incredible. So I I guess that's the kind of writing that I've been doing that I enjoy. I mean, the contrast, you know, between the work at Rambulante, which is so collaborative and team-oriented, versus the work that one does as a writer, which is very inward looking and feels like there's more responsibility because it's just it's just you I really like both of those types of work and I feel really fortunate that I get to do do them both Daniel Alarcon is the host of Radio Ambulante again congratulations on those 25 million downloads and uh, thanks for joining us here on Alt Latino always a pleasure Felix take care man okay bro 
Back in October, reporter Caitlin Dickerson wrote a story for the New York Times about over 500 children who had been separated from their families as they tried to enter the U.S. and then could not be reunited with those parents. It's a complex and emotional story, and she spoke to me about her reporting, what happens next, and what we can expect from a Joe Biden presidency in terms of immigration. Caitlin Dickerson, welcome to Alt Latino. Thank you for having me. Okay, before we get into the current state of things, let's go over very quickly the things you found in your reporting from back at the end of October, because those were pretty startling revelations back then. So at the end of October, it became clear that there were more than 545 parents who were separated from their children at the border who still had not been accounted for, still hadn't been found by the federal government. And then the next month, the number went even higher, over 600. And a lot of people were really caught by surprise because the country, you know, kind of moved on from the drama of family separation. People weren't paying as much attention, but this federal lawsuit that required families to be reunified is still ongoing, and the government is still being forced to hand over more information so that the total number of separated families that we know about is growing and including, um, like I said, the number of families who were separated and who've not been heard from by the government since. In your reporting, you indicate that at some point the courts had to intervene to make the Trump administration be more forthright about how many children were involved in these separations, correct? Have they followed through and answered those questions? The government has fought tooth and nail at every turn to withhold information about separated families. From the very beginning, you know, you'll remember that Trump administration officials came forward after they finally admitted that separations were going on, you know, months after they started. They were immediately facing criticism for not keeping track of parents and families. And it was very obvious that that good records weren't being kept because reporters like me and government officials who you know were charged with taking care of the kids couldn't find their parents. But from the very beginning, Trump administration officials came forward and said, no, 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 we have a perfectly good database. We know where every parent and every child was. And that was never true. And it became clear in this federal class action lawsuit where a judge required the government to reunify the families. And then the government had to admit that they didn't actually know where the families were. And so a search began. But throughout the development of that case, the government has really fought to keep the class, the group of people who are covered and protected by it, as small as possible and and looked for as many exemptions as they possibly could to exclude families and children. Um, And so that's why, like I said, we're still finding out about additional groups of families that were separated from one another, um, because it's not something that the government has offered up willingly. It's that, you know, basically the advocates who who sued the government, you know, they get clues, they get more information indicating there might be more families mm-hmm. out there we don't know about. They take that information into court, and then the government is forced to hand the info over. Give us the bigger picture on why these children are being held and by which agency or agencies. So with the 600 kids in question here, it's important to point out that that they're not in federal custody and we don't know where they are. And in fact, some of them could even be back with their parents. So, you know, the issue and, and the cause for concern here is not that, you know, the government is sort of holding hostage 600 kids in federal custody and doesn't know where their parents are. It's not that. It's really that, you know, now is a time when the court has found the government needs to, one, make sure that families have been offered the opportunity for reunification, and two, um, potentially even provide some sort of 
reparation, some sort of, you know, mental health care. There was a big news story this week about the government fighting against having to provide mental health care services to separated families, but that's something that's come up in court. And so the point, again, is not that we know that the parents and children remain separated. It's that they haven't been accounted for. We don't know their situation. We don't know if they were offered the potential for reunification. We don't know how they're doing, and we don't know how they were impacted by this really unprecedented and probably most controversial policy of this administration. One of the things in following this story through your writing and through your reporting that really just boggles my mind is the idea of trying to track down the parents and how it's seemingly like trying to find a needle in a haystack, this complicated and exhausting work of trying to go back to the countries of origin and track down people who, in some cases, don't want to be found. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and what that process was like for the for the government? Sure. I mean, I was in Guatemala this fall and traveled around a bit and saw just how very different life is and what kinds of circumstances people were running from. It was incredibly dangerous in some areas where I visited and had to have all kinds of security infrastructure in place to make sure that I was safe because some of the families I was talking to were being pursued by some of the gangs that have, have come up in many asylum cases. And so it's hard, I think, for Americans to understand sometimes, especially if the government has your child and they're trying to track you down, how is that difficult at all. But as you pointed out, you know, a lot of times these families were running from circumstances that required them to keep their location secret. A lot of times families didn't even tell, you know, people in their community, even their other family members where they were going when they left because they're trying to hide. And so that creates this additional barrier when the U.S. government is trying to track them down later. And on top of that, you know, a lot of the families really aren't trusting and, and they have little reason to be trusting. So, you know, there's one um, separated mother and child who I've been writing about who were apart from each other for more than two years. And she talks about how when lawyers started reaching out to her and calling her when she was back in Guatemala, they wanted to offer to try to help reunite her and her son. But she was scared. I mean, she had no idea who these people were. And all she knew is that the U.S. government had detained her for more than seven months, um, kept her separated from her son for more than two years. So she thought that, you know, hearing from anybody who seemed to be connected in any way with the American government could only mean more bad news for her family. And it took a while to win over her trust enough for her to be willing to be involved in the lawsuit to try to get back to the U.S. Before we talk about your perspective or your views on the upcoming administration, what about right now? What can the government do to try to remedy the situation and are they doing it? And let me preface that also by saying that we have this image of this the government as an entity, but there's got to be individuals within the structure that are trying to do the right thing, correct? It depends what you are talking about when you describe, you know, the issue or the problem and, and what you're talking about when you describe like doing the right thing. I think that actually there are very few people left working for federal government agencies, quite frankly, right now, who want to take a more humanitarian and more sort of open and accepting approach on immigration. That's not to say that they don't exist, but I have watched over the last four years pretty much Anybody who wanted to try to find a way to allow in more Central American children, more Central American families, um, I've watched them either quit or be fired. And so um, these agencies are really pretty bare. They're operating with much 
lower staffing levels than what's typical. And so there's going to be a lot of rebuilding just to get these agencies functioning again, because they've really been hollowed out. I think that's something that people don't realize because there's just so much happening at once under this administration, right? In terms of remedying any kind of harm or repercussions of, you know, the harsher policies of this administration, and it's not just family separation too, it's the expulsions of kids who've been sent back to Central America without their their families being identified. It's expulsions of kids who've been sent to Mexico, even though they're not from Mexico, kind of randomly sent to and fro across international borders. There is not to this day a federal government effort to identify families that have been separated or otherwise destabilized by the American enforcement policies that have been in place recently. And there may be eventually, but as we've been talking about, those families are going to be hard to find. And those impacts are going to be, you know, things that continue to manifest for years and decades in people's lives. So it's really just the very beginning now. Let's have you pull out your uh, reporter's crystal ball and try to anticipate what kind of changes do you think we'll see with the incoming Biden administration in terms of immigration policy and, and specifically with this issue of the children? I think you can imagine and I think we can expect Joe Biden to pretty quickly reverse some of the lower hanging fruit Trump administration policies that have been most intensely criticized on um, his travel ban and the policy called MPP, which requires asylum seekers to wait in Mexico while their cases are being heard. Refugee resettlement numbers will go back up. Temporary protected status for people who are from countries that have experienced really severe environmental disaster, or really severe destabilization, and were provided temporary relief in the American immigration system that was taken away by Trump. And I think that Biden will bring that back. And then, you know, once that quote unquote easy stuff is done is, is when the real question is raised. And as we all know, Joe Biden is a moderate law and order guy who's really favored law enforcement in many different forms throughout his career hasn't seen a real issue with immigration policies that are pretty restrictive and even in the early debates of this presidential election against when he when he hadn't been chosen as the nominee yet um, some people might remember him saying you know if you want to come to the united states you need to get in line and that really reflects um, an outdated perspective that's just simply inaccurate um, something that was repeated by politicians a lot in decades past something that president obama also used to say in his early years in office i think before people realized that there actually is no line you know whether we're talking about folks who want to come and do you know migrant farm labor uh, temporarily and then go back home or s- send money back home there is our small number of guest worker programs that were available for that kind of work, but the vast majority of agricultural work done in the United States, more than 90%, according to most estimates, is done by undocumented workers, workers that our economy obviously relies on for Central American families who are fleeing um, violence, instability, abject poverty. Again, almost no avenue for them to come to the United States other than to request asylum, which is a perfectly legal process, despite the way that it's often described. So I think that we can expect to see Joe Biden having moved slightly to the left, because I think that what President Trump has done in an interesting way, you know, he's put a lot of attention on policies that he's introduced that were brand new and and more aggressive than people had ever seen before. 
and really upsetting for a lot of the American public, but he also drew a lot of attention to situations and problems that have existed for a very long time, that predated him for a very long time. So I do think Joe Biden is going to have to answer for some of those problems, but I don't think that we're going to you know, expect uh, ICE to be abolished or for our system to completely be transformed overnight. Before we bring this uh, discussion to a close, um, let me ask you something. Let me ask you this. Why immigration? You have been covering immigration for New York Times uh, for a while, uh, five years now, and you have quite an extensive uh, background covering this subject. What is it about this policy, about this aspect of government that attracts you to it as as a journalist? I wish I knew the answer to that question, Felix. As you know, you know, I grew up in a place in the Central Valley of California um, where immigration is kind of everywhere, but it's not something at all that I grew up thinking I was passionate about. I think the honest answer is that you know, when you show up in a newsroom and you've graduated from college, your best shot at getting hired and building a career is to pitch smart ideas that sort of show you have a level of sophistication that's maybe a little bit above your age and your level of experience. And because I had that background and then because in college it was something that I studied, I always just knew a lot about immigration. And so my best story ideas, my, my you know strongest pitches for things that weren't being covered, that people weren't paying attention to or weren't thinking of in the right way, had to do with immigration And then it evolved organically from there. And I have thought a lot about whether I should move on because, right, as you point out, four or five years is is traditional in a news outlet for people to cover a beat and really kind of master it and then take something else on. But I just still feel like there's so much more to say. I feel like there are so many more stories to be done. And what I'm really interested in doing is kind of zooming out, you know, because I've done so many individual stories in the last four years that people have had such strong reactions to. And all that news is important. Um, But if I can zoom out and do some work that really speaks to what it all means, speaks to those inherent contradictions that we were talking about earlier, I think then I'll feel like maybe I can move on and cover something else. But I don't quite feel like I'm there yet. And in, in the interest of full disclosure, we should probably say that you're a former colleague here at NPR. Yes. And I've been following your writing, following the stories, and it, it's uh, been very, very helpful. Help us understand a very complex situation. So, Caitlin Dickerson, thank you so much for joining us here on Alt Latino. Thank you. It's my pleasure. And finally, a portrait of an artist you may not know but should. Nancy Sanchez is an emerging bilingual bicultural artist from East Los Angeles and an immigrant. Even as the pandemic rages on and live concerts have come to a halt, the singer-songwriter has been more prolific than ever and lately more outspoken. She released an entire album in May and in December will release a three-song EP motivated by social justice. Alt-Latino contributor Marisa Arbona Ruiz caught up with her and has this story. Nancy Sanchez was carried over the U.S. border when she was four years old with her parents and her baby sister. They made the long journey from Central Mexico by bus with nothing but their luggage and their American dreams. I think that I have the traditional immigrant story of having parents who just had big dreams of wanting to succeed and and not being able to succeed, unfortunately, in their own country. And they decided to migrate and they brought their two daughters 
And being here with parents like that really influenced everything that I lived. When we came here, we didn't know the culture. We didn't know the language. We didn't know what was happening. We didn't even know how to cross the street. <laughs> really learning the language was a challenge. Um, learning how to be American was a challenge. As with many immigrants, music became a way for Sanchez to hold on to her culture as she developed a hybrid identity as Mexican and American. In fact, music was a family tradition. Her father's Mexican folk singing was the soundtrack of her childhood. And by high school, she was following in his footsteps as a budding mariachi singer. Along the way, life in her East L.A. neighborhood exposed her to pop, rock, and other genres. And she also studied jazz in college. Her passion for music seemed to be predestined. Ever since I was a little girl, I knew I wanted to be a songwriter, which is really weird. Not a lot of people know what they want to be when they're three years old, but I did. Um, I knew that I had a gift for just creating and songwriting when I was like three or four years old because we took a three-day bus ride to Tijuana from Toluca. And during that bus ride, my dad would say, okay, Vamos a ir a los Estados Unidos y la bandera de los Estados Unidos tiene estrellas y tiene líneas rojas y blancas. And that was so in my head that I started singing a song called La Bandera de los Estados Unidos. It is that intuitive connection to music, combined with her working class immigrant upbringing and the richness and complexities of being bicultural that strongly inform her songwriting. That songwriting is on full display on La Gran Civilización, the album she released in May of this year. It features various collaborations and genres, including mariachi, pop, bossa nova, and son jarocho. The album is the result of the national pandemic lockdown of last spring. This album has a couple of songs that I released as singles, and my idea was always to release a full album with these songs and with songs that we were kind of still working on. And as soon as the pandemic hit and we were quarantined in March, I said, all right, here we go. We're going to release an album. This is the time to do it. No encuentro el mar, no encuentro la brisa, no sale el sol. Puerta del Sol was actually for my American Novio album. It's a wapango, and I really wanted to have like a full mariachi version. Actually, when I was touring with Flor de Toloache, we added this song in our set, and we said, we have to record it. It's really the story of how I grew up, and my mom was a housekeeper, and it tells a little bit of a background story about me. But there was more music to come. As social unrest gripped the nation, she was inspired to write her powerful upcoming EP, Say Something, during the height of the Black Lives Matter protests. It releases December 11 on Bandcamp, and its three very moving songs aim to spark social justice and motivate what she calls the newly activated generation. In these songs, Sanchez wields a brand of power charged with a soulful beauty that evokes both the heart and mind amidst all the chaos. I wrote all three songs pretty much in the same week. I was so fired up about what had happened with George Floyd. The city was literally on fire. 
this is the year where we just kind of woke up like we were forced to wake up and take action like any action even walking the streets and holding a sign no mantenernos callados siempre estar hablando like keep keep the conversation going and if you see something that is wrong you say something <laughs> that's the whole point of the, of the of the ep the title track say something is a beautifully orchestrated song with a pop infusion that does just that it is an anthem for this new generation to speak up and demand government policies that protect civil rights and ensure justice. Hasta que todos estemos a salvo is a powerfully messaged folk ballad reimagined as a very danceable electrocumbia social justice anthem with a little hint of Selena that she hopes will move minds and bodies. The Kids Are Still in Cages is a stunningly powerful ballad that not only speaks out to a humanitarian crisis, but does so through her own immigrant story. I want people to identify with the humanity of the situation. They've been literally ripped away from their parents. How can you live with Since she crossed the line in 1989, that little girl who sang rancheras now meets us at the crossroads of change. For NPR's Out Latino, I'm Marisa Arbona-Ruiz. You can see a stunning video for The Kids Are Still in Cages on our website at npr.org slash altlatino. Thanks again to Marisa Arbona-Ruiz, Caitlin Dickerson of The New York Times, and Radio Ambulante host Daniel Alarcón. And thank you for checking out our magazine show this week. I hope you heard something that inspires or educates or both. You have been listening to Alt Latino from NPR Music. I'm Felix Contreras. Thank you for listening. Please, please be careful out there.